HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com. Happy President's Day. We're listening to Let's Eat In. I'm your host, Kathy Airway. This is my guest, Robert Sitsima from The Village Voice. Excellent. And this is Heritage... I mean, I already said this is Heritage Radio. I think the commercial said it before us. All right. Yes, it is. We're all set. Someone asked me, is that like a right-wing Heritage Foundation? And I had to say, no, no, no. This is like a left-wing thing. Wow. (laughs) I I don't even... I haven't heard that because I'm so... I guess I hear Heritage tossed around an heirloom so much. uh, Yes, for us, it's a positive word, but to the rest of the country, heritage often means the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank, I think. So much, speaking of words um, being, you know, used and then defined in different ways, misused or hated, what about the word foodie? That's great. Um, Friends and I have been talking about the word foodie for quite a while now, because foodie went from being like an incredibly positive word to being a neutral word, to kind of being now like almost pejorative. Mm. Uh, we kind of make fun of foodies now, even though we, I guess, are foodies, aren't we? Yeah, I are guess you a foodie? the term, yeah, I guess in a broad sense, the term means snob, right? Or- yeah, not, not only snob, but somebody who's kind of like picky in a useless sort of way about what they eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it could be someone who worries about, you know, sourcing all the time or as we do, of course, mm-hmm. or someone who is just is just like really snobbish in a useless sort of way and doesn't like the way things taste. The kind of person that sends things back in a restaurant because it's not exactly what they expected rather than proceeds empirically as we do just to see what it's going to taste like see my impression would have been the foodie would be someone with who eats with an open heart and mouth and everything that that's comes. the old meaning of foodie yeah okay. but now foodies have kind of made themselves obnoxious in the popular culture as as the foodie net has spread 
Hmm. Uh, as people, more and more people have become associated with foodism and hmm. with the idea of being so obsessed with food that that's your most important activity in life. You can see how this is already kind of going in a negative direction. How, is, how does this even happen? Like, do I we, mean, are we interested in anything besides food? Do you ever talk with anyone about anything but food? <laughs> I'm trying to see if we can get out of <laughs> squirrel out of uh, this foodie kind of uh, label that we have stamped on our foreheads. We both have, as we're sitting here, tattoos on our foreheads that say mm-hmm, foodie. So exactly. it's hard to kind of like pretend to not be a foodie. Well, what do you what do you call yourself if you're a music junkie? Because I know that you are. I'm a music junkie. Uh, I just call myself a junkie. Actually, okay. um, no, I'm, uh, I'm a, a musicist. <laughs> no, there's no word for music. You see, you're still allowed to enjoy music as kind of a positive value without being labeled yeah. as. And I mean, unless you're in a rock band or something, or right. a classical composer or something, in which case that you probably have to deal with people in the music business you don't like all the time. I think but. that that uh, warrants a certain amount of respect instead of uh, disdain. I think that a lot of people who uh, accuse people of foodies just can't get into it. They're just not interested. And so, Wait, Like we have that guy B.R. Myers that yes. recently published that, that uh, scree against foodism, against foodies. Was in, that in the, in the It was on the Atlantic, yes. yeah. And um, I had the privilege of being... Uh, proximate to my computer when it came <laughs> up, so I was one of the first to reply to him. And I, of course, defended foodies. Right. Well, while also kind of like damning them with faint praise. Uh, so, yeah. and, and I found that it was interesting as the responses against him piled up, what the tone of the various Friends responses of were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there was a bunch more, too. I mean, the, you know, anything you barf up onto the internet immediately gets responses. Right. And uh, there's so many food writers that I think there's more food writers than there are <laughs> non-food writers. <laughs> I think there's more. It's probably the largest group in the entire population of New York right now right, would be identified <laughs> as food writers. Well, you yourself have seen that. Like, we're both, to some extent, professional mm-hmm. food writers, but we've seen our ranks so swelled with people that write about food, often without not even liking food. Mm-hmm. It's just because it's popular, mm-hmm. because it's a topic that every, is on everyone's you know, mind all the time. And just the number of increase in restaurants that has pop, that you know, popped up all over the place and the popularity of restaurants. And You know, I started out, um, started out yeah, I started out as a film critic uh, reviewer. Really? Oh, my God. <laughs> and... And somebody was asking me last night, they're like, so did you study foods, food writing? I'm like, there is no such thing um, oh, well, as you'll food be, writing. Oh, well, there but is I know now. There is I now. mean, there are yeah. universities have entire departments in some cases, but certainly programs right. in which one can be certified as a food writer. And once again, we are several steps from reality here because... <laughs> It's not even necessary to like food to be a food writer. Like that guy, B.R. Myers, is now a food writer, even though he hates food and he hates people that write about food and he hates foodism. (laughs) I mean, we have time in the next program maybe to celebrate the positive values, but maybe we should be talking now about the negative, the monster that foodism has created. And for us, it's a personal monster because I've seen the... The amount of money paid to food writers dwindling. I mean, yes. in my own career in food writing, uh, I, I make a decent living, but not an opulent one. And I've seen a lot of my clients like go down. The amount of money that they pay for things has gone from a high of like $3 a word down to $0.15, cents, $0.05 cents a word. And uh, then I noticed that other topics, like if you write about design or fashion or something, get paid more, even oh, yeah, for the same yeah. publication. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. So, why. and it's it's 
you know, there's just so many people out there and so many people that are, that are just not good writers. Uh, so they're neither well, f- you know, real foodies or real writers. So, it, mm-hmm. and of course, with I, the web, you can publish anything anywhere. And now, well, how do you suppose the cream will rise to the top? Well, I don't think it will. I think yeah. it will sink to the bottom like a turd. <laughs> is it cream or is it turd? I mean, once again, here we. What is food writing? Is it cream or is it turd? How did this become so popular? Um, well, it's partly, without puffing ourselves up too much, it's partly the fault of us and people yeah. that like us who, who were so enthusiastic and the enthusiasm became contagious. And then inevitably the capitalist moved in and figured out ways to make money off of this. And suddenly, well, we were just talking about Roberta's. Do we dare talk about Roberta's right here? Sure. Roberta's, we are sitting in a boxcar, a shipping container, which has been retrofitted as a radio studio. We have a picture window looking out onto an area that was once a kind of outdoor fire pit for the restaurant Roberta's, which was, for a a couple of years, foodie central. It was a place where we all would congregate, where we all, you know, all the people that identified either as food writers or food fanciers or people who are really interested in food, and especially the political aspects of food. I mean, that was extremely important. You know, and the modern foodie is not really interested much in the politics of food. They're interested in the glamour of food. Well, I would hope more interested in the politics of food. Well, not anymore. I mean, the the people that are interested in the politics of food are more like a small kernel of old souls. And like I say, we used to congregate at at, uh, here at Roberta's and now what used to be a fire pit is now an extended dining room, and Roberta's has a wine steward, and they're just, you know, they have become a full-blown... They foodied it up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's just, it, those of us who were here in the early days don't even recognize it mm-hmm. anymore, um, and may so. even think it has changed for the worse in, in becoming like a, you know, a powerhouse of a restaurant that... Even you know, even uh, the the hilarious and ridiculous uh, uh, Michelin Guide, which is just like the worst thing imaginable. <laughs> you know, even they have discovered this place and written it up. So you know, it's like well, when Michelin arrives at a restaurant, you better like get your hat and run. So where do you think the real like uh, hub of of uh, kind of foodie and i i don't want to say foodie. Yeah. yeah i mean where well m wells for a while was the place where food you know the okay. the ur foodies were hanging out but i think i think there's going to be a price on our heads and there're going to be people sent out with rifles and stuff to shoot the original foodies who still maintain those what now seem like ancient values yeah um, so i'm t- what, i'm talking like a cynic values? don't believe a thing that we're saying here no, no, but no 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 <laughs> i i totally hear you so like cuz i know that you have um you're very uh uh, I guess uh, principled about how food writing should be done and you're kind of old school about uh, making sure that you for instance are incognito you don't accept gifts from restaurants and you go there at least three times mm-hmm. every place you ever review for Village Voice has gone to three times and uh, you don't make try to you know make special exceptions and so on and so forth um, do you see that this is like on its way out, or how? how well, oh, certainly, is this yeah. No, be upheld. Well, most people believe that I'm not even anonymous, and I am. I mean, I those of us who those of you who've gone out with me Robert's know that Robert's wearing weird glasses right now. That's right. Yes, I'm always wearing weird glasses. Um, no, but it's not even that. It's just my experience is that critics who are recognized want to be recognized. 
mm-hmm. because who wants to be like a micro celebrity unrecognized? Like mm-hmm. you could be the most famous critic in the world, but if you were anonymous, then if no one is like recognizing you and kissing your ass, how can you exist as a critic? That's what people think. So right. um, my an- anonymity comes from my Midwestern upbringing, which means that I don't like to be fussed over. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I almost instinctively went for the the anonymity of the traditional criticism as kind of established by Craig Claiborne. Um, but that also produces a, a, a level of trust with your readers so that they know that you're not well, being treated. Right. Yeah. The most important thing to me <laughs> is that I am on the, on the side of the consumer. I'm not on mm-hmm. the side of the restaurateur, which, which is what allows me to kind of like diss Roberta's here, just mm-hmm. like sitting here, even though they might come and kill me or whatever. Um, <laughs> But the fact of the matter is that almost all things that masquerade as reviews now are done with, uh, with free food that's cadged. Well, let, let me give an example. Um, I recently went into the new Bowery Beef. Wow. Uh, okay. And they don't know who I am. I mean, I just went in there and I got a beef sandwich. I sat there and I ate it by myself. I kind of like, you know, I, I enjoyed it immensely and I wrote about it. But as I was there, there were a couple of bloggers Uh-oh. from a blog whose name I'm not going to mention. But they were there, and they were just like, they were living high on the hog. Oh. You know, even though this place serves nothing but roast beef sandwiches, they managed to catch a couple of free roast beef sandwiches. And they were sitting there, and they were just basking in their own, you know, mm-hmm. reflected light. And they were, like, criticizing the sandwich and saying, oh, if this... This sandwich, I think you should change the role, you know, and the, like the person that owned the place was kind of dutifully listening. Mm-hmm. But to me, you know, they're going to go and they're going to write about the sandwich and it's all under kind of false pretenses. Maybe that's why there's um, so many food writers now. It's like free sustenance. It, it, oh, exactly. <laughs> you know, and um, and so, yeah, it's it's I, I have no I have no objection to people accepting free food from restaurants or whatever, but then to write about it as if they're Without critics. Without saying that. Uh, yeah, that they received the free food. That's where the crime comes in as far as I'm concerned. So, so. are you going to wear your mask or uh, costume at the South by Southwest panel? Oh, definitely. You're going to be on, yeah. on food, media, and yeah. ethics? Check it out, guys. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I'm so delighted to be going back to, to Austin, Austin for the South yeah. by Southwest because I instinctively avoid those kind of festivals because um, I love to go to rock shows, but the idea that, you know, there's got herds of cattle kind of like going from show to show and you never know if you're going to be able to get in the door or not. Now there's uh, herds, well, I'll uh, herds of foodies later. going from yeah, place to place. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of yeah. turning into a well, lot of food things. I was there two years ago and that was the first food media panel. It was like food blogging. And now last year, I don't know if there was, oh yeah, there was a couple. And now there's, I hear a lot. Of food related. Uh, yeah, there are many, many. I was shocked to to look on the roster and see how many food panels there were. And, you know, I just, it's so weird. It's, you know, South by Southwest, there, uh, I guess it's time for the break, right? Yeah. Um, and after the break, more food medium <laughs> on <laughs> the <Excellent>. show. <laughs> Mr. McGee, he told me 
service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. All right, we're back on Let's Eat In. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. This is Robert Sietzema, longtime Village Voice food critic. Hi. Hey. So we were just uh, ranting about how how far things have changed, and this seems like a you know very significant topic that you've been writing uh, very uh, eloquently about lately. Oh, thank you. Um, so I can't wait to see what happens at that panel. There'll be forks flying through the air. No, I'm just kidding. Well, there may be. I mean, it's a kind of interesting panel. Uh, there's also like uh, someone who is Ben Leventhal, mm-hmm. who's the partner of Josh Ozersky in, uh, you know, in Ozersky TV. So I think that they must have put him on there to kind oh, of like kick yeah. my ass. So because you famously have this squabble after your right. open response to Josh Ozersky. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, I still love Josh, of course. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I'm sure he hates me. But, oh. um, but yeah, I, I blew the whistle on him last year uh, mm-hmm. for basically receiving a hundred thousand dollars in free food. food and yeah. free space from restaurateurs and restaurant empire builders, and then writing about it on the blog of Time Magazine right. uh, as if everyone should do this, and not disclosing that he'd received it for free. Now, he, he's kind of like dealing with a tax loophole there because normally he would have to pay tax mm. on $100,000 worth of free stuff. But because it was his wedding, uh, you know, gotcha. he, he's able to, to weasel out of the tax responsibility, but not the, to me, the, the ethical responsibility of when you're writing about something like that and you've received it for free, you must mention that. Well, I think that uh, response really opened a lot of dialogue on how food. It was fun, yeah. Changed. That's the yeah. right way to put it cool because thing. there were people that that lined up on both sides, you know, and it really split the foodie community down the middle. I mean, this was one, you know, to go back to the idea of what's happened to foodism. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had uh, several different phases that it's gone through, and everything for the last three years or so has served as a wedge to divide the hardcore foodies from one another. Uh, another of those wonderful wedges, which have made things so interesting, is the wedge that you created, which is, <laughs> let's eat at home. <laughs> you know, let's not go out to dinner every night and catch free food from restaurateurs because we're big, important foodies. Let's, like, go back to the values of eating at home and making things at home. And, you know, the fact of the matter Thank is you. that when you eat at home, you can control the sourcing of what you get. You can buy from the farmer's markets or a CSA. You can make sure that what you're, uh, that what you're buying come is, has been humanely produced if you do eat meat or flesh of any sort, um, and I do. Um, but whatever it is, you can control the, you know, the conditions under which what you're eating has been produced, which was one of the keystones of foodism in the early days, was how can we seize you know, our eating habits back from the multinational corporations that produce the the crap that's making kids fat in the right. schools, et cetera. So. Well, I'm hoping foodisms, uh, because, you know, I learned about uh, how things are produced through just be ha- having a ravenous appetite for good food and made me realize, oh, there's no, so many other reasons why this uh, bunch of shard is good, you know, because mm-hmm. it was raised uh, with a lot of TLC so forth. Um, and I feel like that's just a natural progression that will happen with anyone who has a real passion for good food. We'll see. 
Well, there's so many thought. people, though, that are no, that are cut off from those original values through the popularization of foodism. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I use the term foodism. People have asked that we not use the word foodism. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, just mainly in comments on the blog that I write for, Fork in the Road, um, people have said, well, this foodism implies religion. And that's the whole idea. I mean, yeah, that's I'm, why I love to call it foodism, because I'm, it has become a religion almost. Can, you, can somebody write a little glossary for me? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm getting all mixed up. Foodism, foodieism, food, food. Foodieism. See, that's one step yeah. away from. But foodism sounds like what it is, which is a religion. And I would say that that is an accurate description of the way us and our friends okay. have treated food. All right, food. I'll try to <laughs> stick with Don't that Don't you one. worship food, kind of? I mean, I do, I do, yeah. What was the last good thing you cooked? Uh, the last good thing I cooked, well, I'm actually in the middle of writing something about how I make buffalo chicken wings. Ooh. So I have my own, like, special you recipe. You have your special yeah. sauce. Yeah, and it, it's, it started out, as many recipes do, with researching on the web and trying to figure out how buffalo wings were originally made. And, mm-hmm. you know, usually you go into a bar now and the wings can be completely indifferent, either really good or really bad. But, but there's nothing I like better than taking a recipe and kind of making it my own. Yeah. One of the things I like to do is to substitute Chinese celery for Chinese American celery. Chinese celery is so superior. Oh, yeah. I can't believe nobody's found this out yet. I know. It, you know, I, I always thought when I first started writing about food that one of the, uh, the upshots would be that chefs would read what I wrote and start incorporating <laughs> things from a diversity of cultures, which I regarded as a positive value, the right. fact that I was, like, introducing people to cultures that were alien to them. Uh, and I thought, well, wow, if somebody's going to read about when I start writing about palm oil used in Africa or about Chinese celery. And start You know, I would see it on the bistro and, menu. Yeah. And no, 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 no. It's because it's because the, the chef schools, the oh, cooking schools are a very negative force in the world of food. Uh, the idea that people that don't even like food that are buy into the glamour, they go and they spend the $60,000 and they go to the CIA or something or they go to the French Culinary Institute. Hey, folks, doesn't that say everything about it, the French Culinary Institute? <laughs> like, I love French food. But the idea that French food is the it's model the for international for cooking, the fact that it's not the Chinese restaurant school. It's, it's the, you know, the fact that Asian food has been isolated from the well, purview they do of these have schools. An Asian program. Yeah, I'm sure they do. <laughs> and I'm sure that it sucks. Well, anyway. Yeah, no, no, really. And so this is controlling the way people think about oh, food, totally. going to these brainwashing schools and blowing all this money and mortgaging the house to go to cooking school, you know, and then you have this set set of ideas that doesn't include using Chinese celery because you don't know it exists. Yeah. And I'm hoping that the, f- the phones are lighting up now, even though <laughs> we're not having any calls. In, but people hey, like getting irate. 718-497-2128. Come on. I'm like that guy that in the fair drunk, dunk the idiot. You know, I'm <laughs> sitting on this little swing, and if you throw a baseball and you hit this target, I'm going into the soup. So I'm going into the very European soup. So, yeah, I know just going to Flushing, just the range of ingredients and different Man, kinds of preparations. We were driving around Flushing the other day, and like I, it was like a kid in the candy shop. Like There was not a place we were passing by that I wouldn't mind trying. Oh, yeah. And I never have that feeling. You know, well, I mean, you know, when you're at the farmer's market, I want to try everything you know, here, but restaurants? It, it's mm. common enough for chefs to go to the farmer's market. That's one of the tropes of chefing now is... That you send one of your underlings, you know, on this painted bicycle with a big basket and you come back. Although now, over the last few years, now, of course, the farmers make their own special devil's bargains with the chefs and stuff to deliver <laughs> the choices morsels. But uh, that's something you must fight all the time is how, how do you get 
exactly oh. what you want. Like when the when the fiddleheads come in and you go to the market and there's none there because all the chefs well, have the bought them. The ramps off, you know? is just funny. Well, the ramps, they've now overproduced. The, the fact of the matter is, this is hilarious. I knew it when ramps started becoming popular, that from my time hiking in the Catskills, I knew that the, the supply of free ramps is unlimited. Yeah. So, you know, uh, there's still so, so much funky stuff that uh, hasn't become popular. I find it every single week at, uh, you know, for instance, Evolutionary Organics. That's a great one. Uh-huh. All crazy kinds of turnips. I've been doing a lot of turnips this winter. Nice. Um, that's yeah. something we've learned from the Canadians, that all of these Montreal restaurants that have come down here from M. Wells to Fedora, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, to Mile End and stuff, there's a certain Canadian sensibility that comes from 20 years ago when the Canadian dollar was so weak that the idea that they would be buying all of this produce from Chile and from California. Oh, I see. So they did this traditional thing where they eat hog products all winter and they eat all these root vegetables. So beet salads and turnip salads, exactly what you're talking about, was their winter vegetables. Why not? Everyone's and, and, saying, yeah. you know, how it's so hard. There's nothing at the farmer's market in the winter. There's but, everything. I mean, <clears throat> and there's something healthy and, and honorable about eating as our four fathers and mothers did, of, you know, of, of eating winter vegetables in the honorable. winter. Yeah. It is responsible. It is humble, modest, too. Yeah. And, Just, you know. And it, I, many people believe it's really good for you, too, because your, your body then... I think it is. I mean, if you live in this environment and this is what grows year-round, season to season, it's good for you. I don't, I don't know. Like, I've been reading a lot about macrobiotics it's kind of dorky um, but like root vegetables for instance have a grounding energy so they kind of stabilize you make you feel more settled energy wise and that's that's I guess I feel like that's a good feeling to have in the oh, winter oh yeah but they're also just plain good <laughs> they are yeah. plain good and there's immensely versatile well and people have known too that some of the best cooking is done Within religious or philosophical restrictions, whether they're the restrictions of the Urfudi or the restrictions of the Buddhist monk or the mm-hmm. restrictions of the macrobiotic person. Or the kosher, whatever. Or the kosher, yeah. You are, you are, when you are constrained, you often produce the best yeah. food, you Small, know, with a more limited chem- palate. Uh, yeah. Choices, yeah. and I don't mean just mean throwing everything that's into your refrigerator in the pot right. because that often results in the worst food. But well, let's talk about another set of choices. <laughs> Choice eats. Village Voices oh. third annual, <laughs> fourth annual, actually. fourth annual. Yeah, I am so happy this year about Choice Eats because um, every year we have, as the the festival has become more popular, mm-hmm. uh, it, we have like been able to attract even more and more obscure restaurant tours. Like we have Good. two African restaurants represented okay. uh, from uh, upper from from the west west, west Africa. One okay. of them is Buka, which is a Nigerian restaurant, and the other one is in Queens. Okay. And it is from, um, from what is the, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Sen- isn't it, uh, it, I don't it, know. For anyone who doesn't know, Choice Eats is when Robert picks a whole lot of restaurants that you should know about throughout the five boroughs, right? Through, that's right, Like yes. the, the most craziest, best, 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 best restaurants um, and gets them all into this big space. It's an old armory. And uh, you get to sample everything. It's a right, really you, wild Right, and you pay experience. like, I think the advance tickets are 35 It's and like the, nothing. Yeah, it, it's, in, and you get, and they also have uh, alcohol too. sponsors. Yeah, you could do like a VIP one, which is a little more expensive, and you have like 
some more perks, actually. I was opposed to that because I don't believe in class society, but... <laughs> well, you know, if, whatever. You yes, can no, skip it's the good. lines or something. It's a good deal. And they also, they just, they have a different selection, a yeah. few extra ones, and you get to go earlier, and it's right, not right. so crowded or whatever. You get to go whatever, earlier. So, yeah. There's actually a VIP hour, I believe. That's right, yeah. And I was very uh, pleasantly, but very surprised that um, one of your associates over at Village Voice, and I, I don't know if you know about this, uh, asked me to do a cooking demo for the VIP <gasps> hour. <laughs> I think I suggested it. Oh, good, yeah, good, yeah. okay, good. <laughs> yes, I, and they're always trying to do new kind of new things, and one okay. of them that I suggested was like a cooking hour, and I said, well, try my Sweet. friend Kathy Irway and stuff. Oh, okay, yeah, so I'll be... So what are you going to cook? I haven't decided yet, but I have a few ideas. Maybe I'll do something with turnips now that I think about nice, it. Nice, nice. Yeah. Because it will still be kind of wintry then. It's It'll what, be wintry. March 28th It's coming up or, March yeah. 29th, I 29th. believe. 29th, thank you. It's always Tuesday, on a Tuesday. Yeah. yeah, at the Armory 50-something street. 20, 20, 27th, sorry. between 26th and 27th <laughs> on Lexington. So It's a wild time. I mean, it gets bigger and better. Or just better each year. Um, and I have the privilege, thanks. because I'm anonymous, oh. of just like going as an anonymous citizen and just like <laughs> kind of like meeting and greeting my friends, but also kind of like keeping watch. Keeping and, a watch. It should be a good time. So what restaurants are you looking forward to most? That I can't say because I, li- I love all of them. Okay. They're like- but yeah, we have a lot of, we have an <laughs> amazing mixture of kind of hipster restaurants and ethnic restaurants from all over the boroughs. You know, what do you hope to get out of Choice Eats? Like, what is the ultimate goal? To popularize all sorts of fringe forms of food that people have not been exposed to, to popularize the food of immigrants, but also of creative chefs. It sounds like a broken back concept, but the most important thing is just to have really great food. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good deal. It's like saying thank you to all It's the, like a potluck party exactly, with all your yeah. favorite places in one roof. Exactly. Or the, the play, yeah, the places, of course, not everyone wants to participate, but we have a really interesting mixture of stuff. Cool tradition. Thanks for doing it. I guess that's about all the time we have for today. Um, uh, thanks so much for being on the show, Robert. My pleasure. And I hope you invite hopefully me back again. again. Oh, again. Ho- hopefully again <laughs> soon. I'd like to thank Jack Inslee and everyone at Heritage, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. 
Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat Lafrida Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant. Well, I think I think part of the sourcing process to me is the most exciting because you you know you rent a car and you drive through the south of France and you know you obviously have some appointments set up but you know some of the most exciting things happen when you're just kind of winging it and you meet a farmer at you know a wine fair and he's you know he says well come back to my come back to my estate and you're not quite sure where you're going you follow a guy in a Peugeot you know, up a rambling hill, and all of a sudden you, you come across either a castle or a, like a shack in the woods, and the guy's making wine out of a, the back of his, you know, house, or he could be making wine out of a major estate. You know, looks are deceiving, but you, you want to you want to assume that someone with a very established chateau is making good wine, but nine times out of ten, the guy out of the garage who's like super passionate is making these better wines, and they're maybe more, more rustic and less polished so to me like the restaurateur the sommelier this story resonates with them about the small farmer you know the guy who's making wine um, on small quantities 80 cases 100 cases those are the things exciting to barterhouse that and hopefully the things exciting to our clients